0: Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening to The Legendarium Podcast. Make sure you take a minute to subscribe to us on iTunes and now on Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook and check out our fantastic website at thelegendariumpodcast.com. Welcome to The Legendarium. It
1: is week number two for our Heroes of Sci-Fi podcast. This week it is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Uh, Craig, Ryan, and Todd are going to take on this novel and uh, ultimately give you the good, the bad, and their recommendation on whether it should be read by you and all of your friends. Hey there, sports fans! (laughs) Was that too loud? No? Okay, we're good. Hey, it's uh, Super Bowl weekend, which uh, I think you all know what that means. Throw ball for. Never mind. <laughs> we're we're all. It's Super Bowl weekend, which means we're going to be talking about twenty thousand leagues under the sea. Uh, okay, that was a non sequitur.
2: Well, yes, but uh, unfortunately, Ken was not here to be able to say anything about uh, that.
1: Well, you know, I was thinking about the fact that Ken wasn't going to be here tonight and uh, normally I have a bunch of prepared insults. Today I decided to forego that because what's the fun if I can't make fun of Ken? <laughs> there is none. It all evaporates very quickly. Uh, so Ken, we we miss you-ish, buddy. Hope uh, you're
2: having fun preparing for the party.
1: <laughs> so welcome back everybody to another week of The Legendarium. I am Craig Hanks. Uh, we have got Ryan Bruckman, my co-host. Hello, Todd the- Wente, our our recurring very common panelist here. <laughs> Might as well be a co-host at
2: this point. Call me Color Commentary. Uh, yeah. Okay, that'll work. I'm um, CCM, Color
1: Commentary Man. Uh, that's the worst superhero ever, ever.
0: <laughs> he flies <laughs> and around I'm, and makes very uh, blatant observations about the world around him.
1: I've heard of some bad superheroes, but um, yeah. So this week we are continuing our Heroes of Sci-Fi series uh, with a discussion of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Um, but what? What was that, Ryan? I beg your pardon. Blech. 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 You did not like this book.
0: No, no, no. I have I have good I have good feelings towards the book, but they're continue on with your point, and oh, I'll, I'll bring it up later.
2: Yeah. Boy, this is going to be a good podcast. You're very good at
1: radio, Ryan. Very <laughs> good. Um, all right. So now, by the way, did you guys know Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea? If translated properly, would actually mean twenty, or would would say twenty thousand leagues under the seas. Oh, interesting. Sous les mers, uh, under the seas, rather than under the sea, because that matters. Uh, let's see. What else did I want to say to it's you? It's going to be a night
2: filled with French ri- French idioms, isn't it? I really. It hope
1: <laughs> You're the cleverest person I know. I know. Um, My now, eyes work. Uh, uh, one interesting point for you guys. <laughs> and I hate you for that. <laughs> uh, 20,000 leagues under the sea. Uh, when I was growing up, I always thought that meant, meant you know, that's how deep the uh, submarine goes. It's not. 20,000 leagues refers to the distance traveled, not the depth traveled. So, yeah, I, I'd never known that before until I uh, picked this up and did a little research. So, how about that?
0: Could you go 20,000 leagues into the sea? Is that no. even physically possible? No, I don't think so.
2: It Depends on how deep the Marianas Trench goes.
0: Not that deep, I don't think.
2: Hmm.
1: Anyway. Uh, so, anyway, let's get started talking. Um, I will provide a bit of a summary on the story that we read. Uh, Todd will give us a little bio info for Jules Verne, if we're going the French route today. Uh, all right. So, a summary of 20,000 leagues under the sea professor anorax is our hero he is an esteemed french academic specializing in marine biology he and his manservant the stoic and loyal conseil hop aboard a ship that is out to hunt down a giant narwhale one of those uh, prehistoric whales with the the freaking sword on its snout i love it the pictures of those things are awesome
0: the child of the unicorn <laughs> and much. whale
1: on board they meet Ned Land, the harpooner whose job it will be to kill the beast that has been sinking ships and generally causing mayhem throughout the seven seas. R. You know, Todd, when you when you make the motions of harpooning a whale, you you know we're not videotaping this, right? Really? What?
2: Oh man.
0: He's hey, Todd's over here playing. Tell you what, I will do commentary for Todd's motions so that everyone <laughs> at home can enjoy
1: this. My word. Okay. Silence, you fools. Uh, they soon find out that what they are hunting is actually a giant submarine called the Nautilus, manned by Captain Nemo and his crew. The trio is essentially taken prisoner uh, and told they cannot leave the submarine because now they know too much. Dun, but, dun, dun. but it doesn't much matter because they get to have all sorts of cool aven- adventures with Nemo and his crew, fighting against imperialism, battling sharks and cannibals, looting old shipwrecks, and visiting the lost city of Atlantis. There's plenty for them to do, and that's pretty much what they do for 400 pages.
0: Under the sea. dun 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 Under
1: the sea. Dun,
2: dun. Wah, wah, wah. Oh, man, you guys are dorks. Uh,
1: So, yeah, that's...
2: Did you know that Disney made a movie of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea?
1: Mm, yeah, I did know that.
2: And who was it that played... Uh, Ned Land in that film I don't know that was uh... oh I can see his face Uh,
1: okay well if you don't
0: know then Ryan's looking it up
2: I'm not going to wait around for you to find
1: out don't
0: wait around for me
1: Um,
2: because there was a song from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea
0: Uh, was it Kirk
2: Douglas Kirk Douglas oh really I swear by my tattoo a whale of a tale to tell you lad
0: (laughs) remember that yes no I don't (laughs) You're supposed to be the Disney guy,
1: Ryan.
2: I'm the old Disney guy. Ryan's the young Disney guy.
1: Focus. Focus, Todd. I need you to provide biographical information for Jules
2: Verne. Biographical information for Jules Verne. Jules Verne was born in 1828 and uh, lived until 1905. He was well regarded as a French novelist and playwright. Interestingly enough, he was uh, regarded more as a writer of genre fiction and children's stories, Uh, During his lifetime, probably more as a result of the uh, poor translations that were done of that work as they were being brought to America. Um, During the period of time, he uh, wrote several books that became associated with being the foundation pieces for science fiction. Uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, one of those pieces, Journey to the Center of the Earth, um, Around the World in 80 Days, depending on who you talk to, but certainly From Earth to Moon. Uh, and one that is not often spoken of, but that is also important, The First Men in the Moon, also a Jules Verne uh, piece. Um, Jules Verne was um, born to bourgeois parents and was originally being trained to be a lawyer. And when it was discovered that he was having a lot more fun writing for uh, newspapers and the stage, he quickly left the law practice and began becoming an an author. Um, He was not very well received by... Uh, French literary society, uh, they probably were part of the reason that he was regarded as a writer of a genre fiction, mm-hmm. as they refer to it, and was never recognized as being a man of letters. And that was one of his great sorrows in his life, was that he was never uh, recognized as a French literary figure. Uh, interestingly enough, if, if you're looking for something that's going to help you win in a game of Jeopardy, should you ever need to... Uh, find your, should you find yourself in that situation? I He's, do often. He is the second most translated author since 1979 falling between William Shakespeare and Agatha Christie prior to 1970 during the 1960s and 70s. He was the most translated author. Um So just kind of an interesting little piece of, of, uh, of, of trivia for those of you that might be interested. Um, it's it's very interesting. Uh Jules Verne has developed a, a following. There is a very um Uh, a very enthusiastic following that say that Jules Verne is the father of science fiction. Uh, uh, Likewise, there is a very enthusiastic following that says HG Wells is the father of science fiction. And um, I have often wondered if we put uh, representatives of those two into a soccer stadium and let them fight it out, who would emerge victorious
0: and who would emerge decapitated? It's the West side story fight scenes of literary history. Um, yeah, well,
1: do you guys... Uh, do Le w- poop
2: on Jules Verne. Oh, shut up. Do the word, the word poop was used a lot in this book.
1: Do you guys um, lend any credence to one side or the other of the debate?
0: You don't even listen to me. I said, Le poop on Jules Verne. Oh, okay. If I, you listen to my exclamation, you would do, understand I, I was actually helping you.
1: Do not listen to them. <laughs> Ever. Ever. So, okay. Ryan,
2: you do know we're not being filmed right now, right? <laughs> you don't. So, need Ryan, to, you are, don't need to Are you
0: him. coming down on the side of H.G. Wells then? I am indeed coming down on the side of H.G. Wells because I look at Jules Verne's work, and yes, I'm not going to begrudge him his place in history. Why are you talking this way? I don't understand. <laughs> because I'm because making, he had LASIK. <laughs> because I'm making a, a point, and I feel I'm going to gain more. Uh, backing on my point by sounding a little more like a British professor. (laughs) Because you sounded more like a gay ice dancer. You are obsessed with gay ice dancers, my friend. You need to let that go. (laughs) Anyway, Jules Verne has his place as an author of science fiction and one of the early pioneers of it because, let's face it, the work he did does fit the title, and it's early in the timeline. However, in terms of just outright ingenuity, we have the submarine, which is shaped like a seashell, basically, the Nautilus. We've got a right there. And then, what else do we really get from him in terms of future prediction of technology or driven or. You know, well,
1: I mean, what about from Earth to Moon? I mean, it, you'd have to go outside of this book, but uh, he predicted landing on the Moon.
0: Okay, I will grant him that. Um, I still give H.G. Wells the the upper hand on that. And being that he has predicted more and he has more in his workings that were consistently ahead of his time, other than just the couple that Jules Verne has, I give yeah. it to H.G. Wells.
2: Okay. That's interesting. I can I can see both sides. Um, one of the things that I'm very impressed with uh, in the way that, that Jules Verne worked is that he tried to um, work with technology that he knew— and assume what could be done if it was used more effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, his piece about electricity um, in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, we spent. A, we, we, I think we've got an entire chapter devoted to how he's generating enough electricity to be able to stay underwater for as long as he is. Mm-hmm. During that period of time, electricity, the electric light, is a is a curiosity um in 1865 um electricity really is being used for the telegraph and for a little bit of illumination in the cities but it really has not become the the central point of of the entire society like it is today um and from that standpoint yeah there's some things that jules verne is doing and and looking at what science will do for us and trying to predict where that's going to go um do i you know if and, and i'm sure the question's going to come up do i do i consider one of them to be more preeminent than the other as far as being a father uh-huh. of science fiction um i i really think both of them were laying the groundwork i'm not sure that i would give the, either of them um the title of the father of science fiction right well you know i don't
1: know that i know enough maybe the
2: grandfather of science fiction yeah, there you
1: go i don't know enough about the subject to come down on one side or the other I've only now read one book by H.G. Wells and one book by Jules Verne, Uh, but just based on those two books, so The Time Machine versus Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, Jules Verne, I am going to give him the uh, witty writer award. H.G. Wells, (laughs) H.G. Wells is um, he is uh, he's like a workhorse of of prose, and this is what we were talking about a, a few weeks ago sometimes the best prose is the, the kind that never makes you stop and say, Oh, that was cool. You know, and that's, I think there's really something to be said for that. Uh, but Jules Byrne, he had me chuckling a few times and he had some really good turns of phrase that I, that I wrote down. Um, in fact, here, here's one for you. Um, so he's, uh, talking about when professor Anorax and his buddies get on the, on the boat, and they're trying to hunt this, what they thought was a, a narwhal. Um, and he says, to catch it called for harpooning, which was which was Ned Land's business. To harpoon it called for sighting, which was sighting it, which was the crew's business. And to sight it called for encountering it, which was a chancy
2: business. <laughs> I just thought
1: that was a really funny and clever... Sentence:
2: I'll tell you what, one of my favorite moments in the entire thing, largely because I have family that lives in Nebraska, was when he says, "I had just returned from a scientific research in the disagreeable territory of Nebraska <laughs> in the United States." I, at this point in time, one of the one of the things that's really interesting is that um, in much in much of science fiction that we have today that the stories take place in the future. What have we done with science that has moved us forward and has changed the way that we live? Whereas Jules Verne and H.G. Wells both were taking their issues in the current time in which they lived. The United States during that period of time, still very much a frontier place. Oh, yeah. Um, not uh, you know, an emerging power in the world, certainly, but not a world power. Um, and and just having, in fact, uh, one of the one of the commentaries that I was reading uh, made mention of the fact that the United States was just coming out of its Civil War during the period of the writing of this book. Um, kind of an interesting, kind of an interesting take on the way that those kinds of things were being put together. But he takes a lot of fun poking fun at Americans over and over and over again.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, he pokes fun at him, but I, I, I maybe I read it wrong, but I felt something of a grudging respect there. Um, when he is, uh, when he's talking about Americans, um, penchant for, uh, for, oh, for, for, being bombastic, yeah. being very bold. There's a, there's a scene, um, in which they're, ch- they're chasing the Narwhale and it's getting away from them. And the captain of the ship says, um, uh, you know, what, uh, what sort of pressure can our, can our boilers hold? And the guy says, uh, oh, six and a half atmospheres, uh, at, like the amount of pressure. And, uh, you know, without blowing, and the captain says, "Make it ten. Let's go." You know, and he says, "Oh, I've, rarely have I heard such an American phrase
2: uttered as that." You well, know? and their 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 January first expression when Conseil comes to him and says, "Well, Ned Land is unfortunately not happy. He can't be happy without meat and wine." <laughs> <laughs> uh, one interesting thing.
1: Uh, this doesn't have much to do with science fiction necessarily, but I I uh, did find it interesting that. Uh, Ned Land, who was a Canadian, he referred to him often as an American. Um, I guess back then, there was still that distinction between America and the United States of America. And if you were from the States, then, you know, that's what we think today as American. But Canadians were just as American as as anybody else from the Americas. You know, so it's and that tripped I'm, me up I'm a sure few Canadians times. I'm sure Canadians
2: really are glad about that, too.
1: <laughs> it tripped me up a few times as I was starting reading it. I said, oh, I thought he was Canadian. Why does he keep calling him an American? <laughs> but um, anyway. Uh, okay, so let's continue talking about things. Um, do you guys have any points you want to bring up? Or should I just keep talking as if you let's are not Let's discuss for, well, let's discuss. Because <laughs> I can do that.
0: Let's discuss for a moment. I thought it was very interesting. This is something that I was brought up as I was kind of reviewing some information about the book. The characters are named very aptly based on their characteristics. Like Nemo. Which is Latin for... No one. No one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you have Aronach, uh, uh, who is arrogance. It's supposed... To, it's not actually... doesn't actually mean arrogance, but it is a sound... It sounds like arrogance. And that is his main characteristic trait. Mm. He knows everything. He's... I'm the scientist-scientist at the beginning. Right. And you go through each of the characters, and they each fit. Their name has something that kind of fits what they represent. And so if we look back at some of the things we've done in the past, our Lord of the Rings stuff, where we talk about characters playing a—is archetype the right word I'm looking for? Sure. Mm -hmm. Archetype? They are where, like, Aragorn is leadership. And, mm-hmm. um, oh sure sure well each of these characters kind of fits that same mold um, in terms of they uh, they represent one thing and on this journey what happens when you carry that one thing on this journey on a journey like this
2: like Ned land or like conseil the the French word for counsel? council right um, yeah they he he never there The interesting thing with Jules Verne is that I think he's – and again, we we had some of this with uh, H.G. Wells. There's a lot more social commentary in these books that are just – that runs just underneath the surface and not yeah,
1: like you say just underneath not very far at all you don't
2: have to go deep not like with some of the other books that we've talked about in the yeah, past
1: yeah I I wonder about that because you know we we finish a uh, Brandon Sanderson book and you know, we're able to talk about yeah there's maybe this political connection maybe he was thinking of this here but, uh, but yeah maybe we're not quite sure and primarily he's just telling a, a good story but it seems like it's much closer to the surface with mm-hmm. these two books that we've Read so far, the political and social commentary
2: and again, I think that's um, that's part of the outgrowth of the of the medium during that period of time. Both of these writers, h c. Wells and Jules Verne, would have been very familiar with having their works produced and published in newspapers, right, so they have to be topical. they have to be something more than just. Fluff and fun. Uh, genre fiction, and I, th- and I think as they dismiss Jules Verne in his time period as a writer of genre fiction, um, that entire idea is dismissed as something not to be consumed by the intellectual. Um, it's not until we really get into the 1960s and 70s that we start being able to say, no, there's, there's a lot of intellectual value in genre fiction in these kinds of books. I think a lot of that comes about as later writers, um, Tolkien uh Lewis uh with the Chronicles of Narnia um and another whose name's forget me so I won't I won't mention <laughs> there, there are no others um okay um you can continue I'm, to think that I'm way kidding. um but they th- we 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 start to have more and more of that done uh and we and we we allow ourselves to have the opportunity to have to escapist fiction um and that was not the nature of the time right
1: and it's it's nice to have the escapist fiction mean something that you know it gives it gives it a little more weight and gives you a, a good reason to actually read it.
2: One of the things that is interesting about science fiction as a as a genre is that it oftentimes wants to tackle um, social issues as they appear in the future and as they have been resolved or unresolved in the present. Um, Star Trek did a lot of that, mm-hmm. um, both in in uh, some of the uh, some of the episodes, but also in some of the books that were published later on. They're all about the the social mores that our civilization was in, and the assumption that we got past them. He uh, doesn't say how. Well, here we have Jules Verne and H. G. Wells both talking about similar kinds of things and saying we're doomed by the social mores we're not going to get past them they are causing the destruction of our species and and potentially the destruction of all life as we know it
0: sweet so i have a question for you guys then to to touch on a, on a point that kind of this kind of brought up there is a lot of emphasis in this story made on the nationality of the characters sure that, that we follow yeah it's not a very common thing. A lot of times we will know in other peaks in other pieces of uh, fiction and literature that we'll know a nationality, but it's not such a, a main point that's reiterated right, time right. and time again. Why do you think that that might be where that, that it's important that we understand the nationalities of this? And then when we meet the crew and Nemo, it's very, very apparent that we are not supposed to know except for the one mm-hmm. time that the guy gets pulled by the squid and he screams out in French. Other than that... These men have no land. They are not, you know, in theory, you know, they are not of any nationality. They're
2: free roaming. They are peoples of the sea. Mm -hmm.
1: We learn at some point, maybe not in 20,000 Leagues, but I was uh, reading about it, uh, that uh, Captain Nemo is uh, some kind of Indian prince. Um,
2: I think I remember reading that. I don't remember reading that. I remember that
0: in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Which, by the way, was a wonderful film. And it's wow. and a great graphic novel.
1: So anyway, um, oh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, to your point, Ryan, uh, why does he make such a big deal about the nationalities? Well, he, over and over again during this story, he is going after imperialism, yeah, especially British imperialism because Jules Verne is French and so (laughs) contractually obligated to hate all things British. And at that point, the British Empire was the fact of life in the Western Hemisphere and for most of the world, really. Um, Anyway, so I wonder if that has something to do with it, this idea of, um, you know, tearing down... The imperialist society that he saw
0: around him. I don't know. So is, is uh, that the some, main driving theme of the book? Do you think? Oh, well, it, I think that's
1: that's what he created as the main driving um, force behind Nemo's character. That's that is Nemo's raison d'être. If we're you know being French, uh, we are
0: not being French. But you can go ahead. <laughs> his his reason
1: for being is to tear down the, you know the, what he sees as the evils in the world and. Apparently, according to jules Verne that 's going to be imperialists uh, imperialists because I pronounce my words
2: an an interesting uh an interesting conjecture for an individual who was born in the bourgeois class
1: yeah, well, I mean, how often is it look around the we, world today where, you know you go look at uh, say occupy Wall street or something it 's all a bunch of Bourgeois kids who get bored
2: and, and her, are mad at dad's money, or who whatever. are angry with their parents. Yeah. I, I'm sure that somewhere along the line, we could probably put Jules Verne on the couch with uh, with with good <laughs> Sigmund Freud and have them come up with lots of interesting conversations.
1: <laughs> I'm pretty sure you could put Sigmund Freud in a couch by on a couch by himself with nobody around, and he'd have lots of interesting conversations. Yeah,
2: yeah, you could be right. Yeah.
1: Oh boy, that was that was something. Um, Let's let's talk a little bit more about Nemo. Um, it, did you guys notice? So, it, like you say, Todd, these are these are people of the sea. He has renounced any country, any nationality, whatever. He it's all it's all about the
2: sea to him. He's a scavenger
1: until and, and so he beats Anorax and the reader. What
2: you you weren't even going to jump on my comment uh, of him being a scavenger. No. <laughs> I'm ignoring you. Uh,
1: so he he really beats this point uh, a lot with Anorax. He says, oh, no, I'm, I don't belong to any land. I don't have a name. My name is Nemo. Uh, I'm nobody. Um, until he starts to give a tour of the boat. And where, where's the first place he takes the professor? To the, library, to the library, where he keeps all of these books from the world that he's supposedly renounced. And he says, these are my last mementos of that world.
2: Twelve thousand volumes.
1: Where's Where's the next place he takes him? Oh, to this museum where he keeps all of these precious uh, works of art from this world that he has supposedly renounced. Anyway, it's uh, so that kind of threw me off. And it, won- it made me wonder, is there some point to be made here about, you know, trying to renounce the, the world of men and, and live off the grid as we might say today you know can can you live off the grid uh, in a, in both a material way and an emotional way can you really separate yourself from human culture uh or, or is it always going to be an issue
0: hmm did not think about that at all
2: yeah well that's what i'm here for i i, I did um, and the thing that I the thing that I've taken from that is um, it it shows up in it shows up in this kind of of uh, literary device or literary group uh, pretty regularly of the individual who thinks that they have seen the the fall of civilization they have seen the end of all things good about our our species and they will take the last pieces of good that there was take them away from us because we no longer deserve them and wait for us to destroy ourselves or help us along the path as the case may be. So this
1: is a, so the Nautilus is a moving doomsday bunker from the A&E channel. I
2: really, I really get that feeling. Um, As I, as I read through the novel, as I read through the process, as I, as I see what he's doing and the piece, the, the the thing that I think he's trying to do is to increase the number of, uh, of engagements that, men have against each other so that they will speed the process they will be responsible for removing themselves so that Nemo can take back all control of the sea right and and thus eventually yes restart the world yeah I you know it's 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 not overt in the novel that that's what's going on but it certainly is it certainly is reminiscent of the of the type of literature that this comes from
0: I gotta Um, say uh I don't know Ryan, how you're I... still
2: making a face.
0: Oh, it's sorry, I was still trying to process a good my my thoughts and feelings towards that idea. And just what I've come to so far is the idea that could you walk away from human culture? Absolutely, but if you come from it, you will have been affected by it already. So you can walk away from it and not be affected by it in the future but you will always be affected by the past that exists. And I think Nemo might be that way Uh in carrying his mementos and everything. He's severed saying, I don't want to be, I don't want, I do not want to be affected by this world any further than I have. I will take these as a remembrance, both good and bad. I will take these, you know, these mementos and say, so that I always remember where I came from and what I don't want to go back to or what I don't want to turn into. And I will go live the life from here and, and sever myself from that. Yeah. So I think you know possible whether that's a wise choice or another is a whole other debate. But that's well, for in the sense of Nemo, I think that it is possible to to move forward outside of the realm of the existing human culture.
1: And I think it's actually kind of a, a relevant debate to have uh, these days because there's this is an issue that was starting to well, it, it was only just starting to become an issue when Jules Verne was was writing, but the world has been discovered now. There's, you know, he plants his flag on Antarctica, and that's about it. You know, we know the, the Earth is a globe, and here are all of these land masses, and we, you know, we basically know what's out there. Um, and so there's only one place to go now if you want to truly separate yourself from society, and that's the sea you know and and that's why he continually waxes rhapsodic about the sea um but it's uh it is something interesting now because we may have the desire to separate ourselves uh to live off the grid and to to remove ourselves from from society but you can't it i mean can you really i you might be able to go find some woods in the uh the the appalachian mountains or something like that you know you can probably find a spot but at a certain point you're gonna need to go
2: in your polar fleece vest get a,
1: exactly driving your car and getting your groceries whatever um you know there's there's no way to do it anymore
0: we're trying to create a pseudo off the grid uh it sounds really weird in your living room no oh in the sense that we're we're working out these fantastic things with technology to limit our interaction with other humans and still have the comforts that we have that were previously created by humans. So we go to the grocery store now. You don't need a checker anymore. There's a self-checkout line. <laughs> Amazon.com has made it in a number of cities. You don't have to leave your house to go grocery shopping. So we're there's this idea of being off the grid but still plugged in. And that's that's I think nowadays more common than the than the whole off the grid growing a beard in a flannel shirt out in the woods type thing. That I believe is an actual real thing that we that exists today. Um, people who are just I don't want to deal with people because we all hate people. I mean I hate except for I do.
2: except for ourselves.
1: Well, I mean well, I'm yeah. not <laughs> such a huge fan of myself either, I'll be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I I absolutely know what that's about. I am um, a person very uh, very close to me, who I know, is far more comfortable interacting remotely uh, with machines and you know maybe the occasional person. But yeah, I I get that. So I think I get what you're saying. The internet is the ocean. Is that what you're saying?
0: Sure, I'll go sure, like yeah, that. okay. I'll, I'll ride that wave. <laughs> surf surf, dude. You're going to surf the web. Oh my gosh, guys. We have officially now hit the lowest point in comedy. Oh, so. Man,
2: this got It's bad. a good thing we weren't trying to be funny. <laughs> we, were, I mean, we had an intellectual
0: conversation going, people were being edified, and we just killed everything we've done in the last 31 minutes.
1: Hey, so let's talk about the ocean a little bit. <laughs> um, seriously, let's talk about the ocean a little bit. Uh, one of my favorite things about reading Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea is uh, the ocean stuff. He just, you know, some of it he gets right, and some of it's kind of, you know, weird and fantastical. You mean but, like the sea spider? Uh, like the sea spider? <laughs> uh, but it's it's a ton of fun, and you you get a sense of wonder from the sea which is nice i really enjoy that you you know you yeah. can get
2: that in s- no you not so much for you uh, no, i i i see where you're going with that i i, um, I buy that yeah. reading it was a little bit different than i and i have to admit um, having having read the book um and now rereading it and and going back and thinking about watching it on disney yeah uh, watching the disney film uh, a lot of the prose, a lot of the a lot of the material that I was reading, I found myself remembering those visuals that were so wonderfully put together yeah. uh, during that early film. And there was a lot of wonder captured in that film. And having made aii I've I made a couple of trips over to the Living Aquarium. Um, there's there's some magnificence and some wonder about the sea because it's still so foreign to us. It's it's still such a hostile environment, and we don't see a lot of it. Most of us recognize a lot of Quadruple- quadruped creatures but we don't recognize a lot of the finned ones. Oh man. So and they in, all scare us.
1: In in Jules Verne's day, his count uh, his, his marine biologist knew that there were 13,000 species of fish vertebrate fish in the <laughs> sea. Uh, I went and looked it up. According to uh, fishbase.org which is in fact a data- database of fish awesome. Uh, yes, I learn something new every day on the internet. Uh they put the number now at thirty nine or sorry, thirty two thousand nine hundred species of fish in the sea. That's a lot. Hmm. See so, and uh, I, I bet it's
2: And many of them are phosphorescent. That's
1: you use big words mean no smarty. <laughs> that means they glow in the dark, yes? Yes Yay.
2: very much like the Nautilus.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, that was a weird feature
2: of the Nautilus, wasn't it? mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Yeah. But it, uh, and and this is a well, let, let's pursue this grain, this vein and I'll come back to that.
1: Now. Okay. Um anyway, yeah, when it comes to the sea, I don't know about you guys, but I I really I I'm enamored of the ocean in in a in a uh oh, let me put it this way. In a way. Um I love the idea the romantic idea of being on the sea. Mm -hmm. You get on a ship, you sail somewhere, um, but being in the sea terrifies me. Absolutely terrifies me. I think because of that foreignness that you talk about, there's something about how slow I am in the water and how quick fish are in the water. And Mm -hmm. you have have not just 360 degrees, but 360 degrees on any axis from which an attack could come at any moment it
2: yeah absolutely terrifies me i remember um i remember when i was a scout and i was getting my swimming merit badge and they were talking about how people could survive for days by doing the dead man's float mm-hmm. and you know so we had to learn that that floating technique and i was sitting there as i was going through that process and i and i i remember saying to myself i just hope the shark eats me fast because i it, it, it it's exhausting it's terrifying to me the idea of being alone in water. So is sharks the most terrifying thing about the sea for you? Uh, No, drowning is the most terrifying thing. Okay,
1: drowning. Ryan, what about you?
0: I have this issue with things with an exoskeleton and claws. Oh, okay. So my biggest fear in terms of like animals Uh is the scorpion. Oh, really? I cannot... Wait,
1: are we talking about land
0: animals now? Just just in periods is the scorpion. Okay. And that sort of creature and so like sort of a, a crab or a crabs lobsters i can i mean i'm not i can walk in the store without having a traumatic experience when i go by the seafood counter <laughs> yeah but if one were to come out of the water and charge me i would scream like a small child turn and flee the other direction because i just there is something about them that looks alien to me you know what and it is, scares me.
1: for me it's the exact opposite you like you you hate these uh skeletal things uh jellyfish for me scare the tar out of me
0: you're the second person i have met who is afraid of jellyfish i, and I did not realize that that many people could be afraid of jellyfish yeah i
1: i've never i've never been up close to one i've never been in danger of being stung by one but just the stories just the thought uh it's some sort of bizarre visceral fear with me i i wish nothing but
0: harm on all the jellyfish in the world <laughs> well there you go amelia there's the other person in the world who's afraid of jellyfish <laughs> uh
1: yeah okay Anyway, what else do you guys want to talk about with 20,000 leagues?
2: Terrorism.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, you know, that's a good one. This, because Explain. because I'm not entirely sure that I like
2: Captain Nemo. I don't think you're supposed to. Okay, good. I I, I think that, I think what we're supposed to we're supposed to, uh, I felt that I was supposed to wonder to myself what it is in people that I see that I admire, and why I admire them, because sometimes what I admire about them leads to some really ugly places. Um, in in politicians in general, we might say that, but I but I think that he uh, that Nemo embodies this idea of what happens when you take an ideology too far, and we live with that now. Once again, we have a, a situation where, um, at least from my perspective. In, writers from the 1800s are looking at what's going on and pushing this forward to the future and saying, if we're not careful about the way that we handle things, this is where we're headed.
1: Yeah, okay. So I, for those listening, uh, give them a quick rundown of what what Nemo does with well, his ideology.
2: Nemo decides that since men are the problem uh, and they are coming in and polluting his seas, he will make sure that they stop. And so his his vessel... Is designed as a, a monstrous single single-minded piece to destroy interlopers into his kingdom, uh, so to speak. And so as he moves through and, and attacks different vessels from different countries, the intention is to make them so afraid of the sea, at least as I as I'm going through and taking all of these pieces together, that they will that they will stay on the land and destroy themselves there, but leave his sea alone.
1: Yeah, I buy that. And stupid imperialists.
2: Well, and that's and, and that's the problem is that they use the sea and, and we're hearing that now, we we hear that with ecological terrorism on, on on the land as well as in the sea. Um that that we don't respect uh we don't respect the resources, we take them for granted, we 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 use them for our purposes, but we do not respect what they mean for us. Um, and we see that being played out today. Um, we, we see it through Greenpeace. Uh, if you, if you are in favor of their mode of their, of their agendas, um, that's, that's one thing, but the, the methods, the methods that they use occasionally become pretty, pretty rough,
1: which brings up a very interesting question that I had, Ryan, how many loggers have you chainsawed to death this week,
0: (laughs) this week? (laughs) Uh, I've been meeting my quota. I haven't done any this week.
1: Um, yeah, it's yeah. I I didn't love Captain Nemo because of exactly what you said, Todd. It's um, ideology run amok.
2: And one of the one of the things that I was that I was reading um, talked about the idea that Nemo is that that Nemo is is a is an interesting conundrum. On the outside, we have all of this beauty, all of this. Um, attention to detail, all of this ostentatiousness, but on the inside, Osten- on his inside, Ostentatiousness. it's several syllables. Okay, um, look it up. Um, <laughs> read a book, um, but in in his in his heart, in his center, he is hollow. When you look in his in his bedroom, it is bare, um, as perhaps an indication to his soul that it is also bare and devoid of feeling toward humankind. It's an you- interesting. Piece.
0: Do you know what this whole discussion has got me excited for now? Age of Ultron because that seems to be exactly what his ideal is.
2: <laughs> you know what? Uh, it's it's going to be a it's going to be a similar kind of an idea. Um I I think I I think that the that if Ultron and Captain Nemo were sitting down together, uh, they would put themselves into the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen at least long enough for Nemo to be killed.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, uh, guys, let's, let's uh, before we start diving into Age of Ultron, <laughs> let's uh, <laughs> begin the process of wrapping this up. Um, I will say, for anybody who hasn't read 20,000 Leagues um, and is venturing into it, uh, just be aware this is different from your typical novel, because like we mentioned, we kind of skirted around this issue a little bit, but this was written uh, very episodically, mm-hmm. this uh it, it was written for newspapers and magazines i think back in this time it was newspapers but the, he would publish a chapter every week or every month um and so and and so you you don't have quite the same story arc so just heads up there you start out the adventure. It takes you a little while to get to the Nautilus, and then when you get there, you get lots of adventures.
2: And if you're if you're thinking that this is going to be the same kind of fun romp that eighty, uh, 80 days around the world in eighty days was, where everybody was betting on whether or not fog was going to make it back in time and all these kinds of things, this is a very dark departure for Jules Verne. Oh, sure. So yeah. it's, it's, not a, it's not a happy, it's not the happy kind of story that, 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 that some of his other works are.
0: He seems to be a bit obsessed with the idea of getting around the world. Uh,
2: you know what? And, that's, <laughs> and, and I find that interesting because during this period of time, that is a very rare feat. Um, during his period of time. Today, it is still a rare feat. And there's not a lot of us that can say we've been on all seven continents, we've been in all 12 seas, we've been in all of these different places. Um, a few of us can, a few of us can't.
1: I just watched a documentary with a Dutch girl who was the youngest to ever sail around the world solo.
2: Yeah. some. You know, It's still an, an amazing accomplishment. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, one, that I, one that I have on my bucket list.
1: Which, uh, okay, so...
0: Uh, Final I do not thoughts have that on my bucket list. There are a couple continents I'm perfectly good, never touching. <laughs> a couple seas I'm good, not bathing in.
2: I, I understand that Antarctica is really smelly because of all the penguins. Oh,
0: okay. that makes me sad. I like penguins.
1: Uh, final thoughts, you guys. Uh, question for you to to leave our listeners with is, uh, frankly, do you recommend this book, uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea? If um, I I think we all recommended uh, the Time Machine, the, partly. Because it's so dang quick, you know. This one doesn't have that luxury. It's a pretty long book, it, and it's um, a tough
2: slog in places.
1: Yeah. So, so my question is, if somebody says, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I like science fiction, do you say, hey, yeah, you ought to go read Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea?
2: Hmm. Uh, I guess, but by, wow. by the hesitation on both of our parts, um, I would say, I would say it's not on my top five. Okay.
1: Well, I mean, that would be pretty of, tough to crack.
2: Well, you know, to even even if we were talking about books that would be on my top five of of uh, foundational science fiction pieces, yeah. um, I think The Time Machine or War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, uh, both of those, I would say, are very much on my list um, as, forma- as formative pieces. I think First Men in the Moon or Journey to the Center of the Earth might be more likely from, if I was picking a Jules Verne mm-hmm. book, to mm-hmm. say... If you want to read a, a fun science fiction book by Jules Verne, pick these. Again, they become a little bit tough to to read um, because they are his his writing style. Products of his time. Yeah, yeah. But Twenty Thousand Leagues, I'm not so sure.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll I'll buy that. I would probably say I I might not recommend getting through the whole thing. You don't need to. But if you've never read Jules Verne, I was pleasantly surprised with how clever he was. Okay. Um his writing his writing was good. Uh he was a very skilled mm-hmm. uh writer. So uh yeah, maybe we move on then to our next book, um which I, I don't know if it's official yet. Ryan and I have toyed around with i Robot uh by Isaac Asimov.
0: I've been pushing for Starship Troopers, but I don't know if it fits well, in that time or not.
1: I, I think uh, I think if we move up chronologically, Starship Troopers will come a little bit later. Starship
2: Troopers is about twenty years after so. uh, Asimov. Asimov writes early earlier by about twenty years. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we'll uh, is
1: we'll have yeah. some discussions, uh, but let's let's count on that one uh, here in the next couple weeks. So if you're following along, go grab a copy of iRobot uh and join us for our next uh for our next edition of Heroes of Sci-Fi uh which is great because uh, the only thing i know about Isaac Asimov and iRobot, you know because the will smith thing doesn't count i Uh, Yeah, no, it doesn't. Uh, The only thing I know about it is that he uh, Isaac Asimov gave us the
2: the rules rules of robotics, the three laws of robotics, the
1: three laws of robotics, which I'm very excited to go over. So, uh, grab a book.
2: Welcome to my world, gentlemen.
1: Follow along, and uh, and we'll enter Todd's really twisted mind in a couple of weeks. Uh, Thank you uh, for listening. Thank you guys for reading, uh, because uh, heaven knows we do this far too often to be comfortable reading so many books um and uh, we will talk to all of you in a couple weeks
0: hey everybody thank you so much for listening to the Legendarium podcast make sure you take a minute to subscribe to us on itunes and now on stitcher radio like us on facebook and check out our fantastic website at com.